Good morning. If you're following along in one of the Pew Bibles, um, today's reading can be found on page 977. 977. And I'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy in the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors. So glad that you're here this morning. Thanks for gathering with us. We had the young adults in our house until like around midnight last night. So whatever happens this morning, it's not my fault. It's their fault. And those of you who were there last night, if there's someone that was there last night but isn't here this morning, you you text them right now and you get on to them because I'm up here doing this and you they ought to be out here listening to this. Uh, We had a good time yesterday. It was a lot of fun. Uh, One quick announcement for something that's coming up here in the next few months, actually on April the 2nd, uh, we are going to host a conference. Uh, The topics, you know this as well as I do, the topics of gender and sexual identity are increasingly mainstream and controversial, not only in today's culture, uh, in our world, but even within the body of Christ. Um, How do we understand these human experiences through the lens of Scripture and through the lens of grace? Many Christians find themselves struggling to navigate these complexities, these new complexities for some of us. And some of us struggle with unwanted desires. Others of us feel confused or maybe embarrassed about the Bible's teaching on some of these issues. And some of us are at a loss with how to best relate to our LGBTQ friends. So as Jesus Church, right here in 19001, we need to be equipped with God's truth and mobilized with practical, redemptive tools to honor God with our lives and to love our LGBTQ friends faithfully with our words and actions. But how will we do this and what will it look like? Well, we hope that you will join us on April the 2nd this year. Uh, We are flying in Dr. Peter Hubbard for a free half-day conference, and together we're going to explore answers to questions like, what is the Bible's teaching on same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria? What should I do if I'm experiencing some of these feelings? What do you do if your child comes out to you? What if a coworker demands use of their pronouns? How do we remain faithful to the Bible's teaching and still willingly engage in these conversations with wisdom? with clarity and with love. We'll answer those questions and many more. We hope you'll join us for this. Uh, If you've got friends that would benefit from this, please invite them as well. We'll get a a registration link out in the next week or two, Uh, but we hope you'll be able to join us for that half day together. Um, Really looking forward to that. All right. Uh, I remember my eighth grade history teacher, Mr. Harris, Uh, If you were here last week, he never told me that I smelled like bacon, but he did embarrass me in one very uh, specific way when I was in eighth grade. One day, I was sitting in class, in history class, 
And he, for whatever reason, I can't remember the impetus, but for whatever reason, he started talking about the way I looked when I walked and ran up and down the basketball court during our games. In front of my entire class, he told me that I had floppy wrists when I ran up and down the basketball court. Uh, and th- this was a, just a, a difficult moment in my life. Now, and this was my, like, my second or third year playing basketball. So apparently, I had been floppy wristing it for 40 or 50 games. And no one ever told me until Mr. Harris that day in front of the entire class. Um, apparently, I would, I, would walk, I would walk and run down the court like this. And I didn't believe him. Uh, at least, I didn't believe him until one day, a few days later, uh, my team was watching film during practice to prepare for the next team or whatever. And sure enough, there I was running down the court with floppy wrists. And I was so, so embarrassed. Needless to say, I fixed that problem. Thank you, Mr. Harris. Uh, We all have peculiarities in the way that we walk or run, don't we? Some of our toes point out, some of them point in, some of them are straight ahead. Some of us sort of drag our feet when we walk. Some of us walk very prim and proper. Some of us flop our wrists. There are distinguishing features in the way each of us walk. Uh, Paul addresses our walk here, but for Paul, uh, walk is just another way of saying how we live there in verse 1 of chapter 4. Walk of life, you might say. Paul urges us to walk worthy of our calling. He very easily could have just have said, live worthy of our calling. So just as there are distinguishing characteristics in the way that, the, the, the way that we walk, in our gates, in, out, straight, whatever, there are distinguishing characteristics in the way that we are called to live together as Christians, to walk worthy. Paul says, live worthy. And it means to live up to this certain standard. You know, if you're hoping to be a worthy employee and earn the employee of the month parking spot, you have to work hard and hit a certain standard of service. If you want to be an honor student in honor society, you have to earn straight A's. Worthiness is attached to a certain standard of living, no matter what arena of life it is that you are pursuing worthiness. Now, I bet some of us are already tripping this morning, right? We might feel the tide of shame rising up in our hearts. I've tried living worthy as a Christian, and all that did was fuel crippling shame. I tried to quit pornography, but I came right back. I tried to deny those ungodly desires, but I gave in. I committed to reading the Bible every single day, but I slacked off. I ain't living worthy. I'm not walking worthy. To those of us in here that are like that, living a worthy life might sound more like a noose than anything. One more thing to do that I know I'm going to fail at, so what's the point? What is the point of even trying to walk worthy? Living worthy does not mean that we ought to try to merit God's favor, but rather it's this, to live in light of God's gifted favor. We don't try to earn favor, we live in light of the reality that God has gifted us his favor in Jesus. For those of us who are Christians, Jesus has lived worthy in our place and gifted us that worthiness through faith. We get gifted worthiness from God's perspective through faith in Jesus. And that worthiness from Jesus is the only thing that gives us access to God. You couldn't ever be worthy enough for God to accept you. But Jesus was in your place, and he offers it to you as his free gift. This gifted worthiness is what motivates us to live worthy of our calling. So we shouldn't get that twisted this morning. 
What blows wind in the sails of our worthy living is that Jesus has done it for us and gifted it to us. In any case, Paul's focus here is not on our personal worthiness, but on the worthiness of our calling. The calling with which we have been called is the way he says it there in verse 1. So what is that standard that Christians live up to that makes them worthy? Paul describes that standard, that worthy standard, as a calling there in verse 1. And so to understand this, what that standard is, we have to look backwards in time. All the way back to the, the beginning of our relationship with Jesus. It's explained in Ephesians 1, at the time when we had the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we might know what is the hope to which we have been called. There's that calling language right there. Uh, way back in Ephesians 1, we see it there again in our text today from Ephesians 4, 1. Uh, this calling is in reference to the supernatural moment that you became a Christian. That's what the Bible means when it says, uh, when it describes this calling. In other parts of the, the Bible, it's described as God calling you out of darkness and into light. And how does Paul say that you and I received this calling? He says there uh, on screen, by someone else opening up the eyes of our heart. That's how we receive this calling. In other words, you are a Christian this morning. If you are believing Christian. If you are a Christian, you are a Christian because you have been called by somebody. Your eyes have been opened by God himself to see the supreme value and your desperate need for Jesus. That is the only reason you have faith this morning. That moment of your conversion, think back to it, wherever you were. Maybe there isn't a specific moment, but for some of us, we do have a specific moment that we can think back to. Think back to it. Even though you couldn't see in that moment with human eyes, you were experiencing a saving call from a sovereign God. That probably cuts against the grain of our experience, at least our felt experience, though, doesn't it? We sometimes think that we have grabbed a hold of God and found him, but it's really the other way around. It's a quote by G.K. Beale. I'm going to need you all to start calling me J.R. Hurst around here, okay? <laughs> Those initials make you sound important. Anyway, God grabbed hold of us. If he didn't call us, we would not have come. This is the calling that we are to live worthy of. Remember what Paul said? Walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which you have been called. But how? How, how do we do this? We touched on this a few months ago at the beginning of Ephesians, but when we get into this discussion of God calling us and his sovereignty, we are delving into the deepest mysteries of God, like how our responsibility and God's sovereignty interact. And when we try to sort of unravel these things, we should tread very carefully and very humbly. Sometimes you just got to sort of nod your head and let God be God. Eugene Peterson said it like this, God is who he is. We don't figure God out. We don't explain God. We don't define God. We worship God who is as he is. We don't second guess God. We don't evaluate God on a scale of one to 10. We don't presume to tell God how to be God. When we worship God, we let God be God. This demands absolute humility. We become aware that we are in the presence of a reality that cannot be used cannot be packaged, cannot be grasped on any other terms than are given to us by God. Those are humbling but true words. And this is how we approach this talk of God calling us this morning. Sometimes it's best to just set aside our questions for a minute, 
to stop our calculating and to just enter into the wonder of it all. God chose us. Let's adore God for his mysterious majesty rather than doing the math and try to figure it all out. This is the utter humiliation of our salvation, though. It is entirely independent of you and all dependent on Jesus. But there's good news here, really good news. God cannot uncall you based on what you do or don't do because he never called you in the first place based on what you do or don't do. You cannot be uncalled by God. He called you based on what Jesus did and didn't do. He called you in Christ. There's tremendous freedom in there for us. Your position before God has been decisively settled simply by being in Christ, and nothing can threaten that. You're safe this morning, those of us who are in Jesus. We have to keep this in mind as we travel down the path of the rest of our text this morning. The calling is high. The standard is lofty. How do we live our lives in a way that reflects this immense privilege that we experience and enjoy as children of God? Well, Paul tells us how. It's our big idea for this morning. A big idea is kind of just like an encapsulation of our entire text. If you were to take one thing away, this is it. And this is what Paul is telling us to do. Walk worthy of our calling by straining for unity. Walk worthy by straining for unity. So if, if you can sort of take yourself back, if you've been here for any period of time during this Ephesians study, you remember that this isn't the first time, time that we've talked about unity in Ephesians. It's been top of mind for Paul. And I can't help but think that in God's providence, it ought to be top of mind for us right now in our current situation. And maybe the most disunified that we've ever seen the church in probably most of our lifetimes, not just our little church, but the church around the globe. Because we're experiencing that right now, I think our ears ought to perk up just a little bit more in all of this unity talk from Paul, because we really need this, and we really need this right now. If we want to be able to make it as a church, we need this text from Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 3. When the winds blow, and they're blowing now, And the news is troubling, and it's troubling now. And division seems insurmountable. Like, how do we even dig out of this where we're at right now? It's the way it seems. We need a text like this to urge us to pursue unity against all odds. And Paul's going to help us by the Spirit to see how to do that this morning. And the amazing thing about this text is that what it calls for, the Spirit of God enables. What it calls for from us, the Holy Spirit of God enables Do you remember a couple of weeks ago when we looked in depth at that supercharged prayer there at the end of Ephesians 3? Supercharged. That prayer was specifically designed to aid our unity. We ought to be praying those realities at the end of Ephesians 3, 14 to 19, 14 to 21, I should say. We ought to be praying those realities toward our unity. The Spirit, through prayer, enables us to pull this unity into reality. So we are not alone in this this morning. Dust off that prayer from the end of chapter 3 and see what God will do as, by his spirit, you walk worthy and straining for unity. Three supporting ideas for this big idea this morning. The first is this. The cost of our walk, the price of our walk is worth it. The price of our walk is worth it. 
Here in the middle of the letter, we are reminded of what Paul's surroundings are when he's penning these words. You can see it in verse 1. Dim light, dank smell, rats scampering across the floor. Paul's in prison. Why do you think Paul is reminding them right here of where he's writing from? Why is he calling to the attention to the fact that he's a prisoner? He says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. I think the answer is that he wants them to feel that the truth is worth it. The truth that he is writing to them is worth clinging to. Walking worthy of our Christian calling is worth being in prison for and even worth dying for. It's that real. His appeal for costly unity is underscored by his own costly commitment. He's willing to go to prison for it. By reminding us that he is writing from prison, Paul is reminding us that his message is dangerous. Don't get this twisted this morning. This is quaint and nice. This is gritty, grimy, hard work of unity, of community. There is not a nice and easy way to solve race and class and religious and political conflict. Real, radical Christianity is risky, it's unpopular, and it is dangerous. Paul's in prison. He's saying the worthy walk is worth the risk because of what you get at the end of the walk. And we'll talk about that in a minute. I'm not sure why you think that you were put here on this earth. There's got to be some reason you think, ah, I'm here for this reason. I don't know what your niche is. I don't know what your gifts are. I don't know what your particular value is to your company. But the capstone of your worth is this, that you display God's splendor through a worthy, unified walk with other Christians. This is your calling, your worthy calling, that you display God's splendor through a worthy, unified walk with other Christians. Maybe, and even especially with the ones where, with whom unity is not natural to you. We all have friends we get along with easily, right? Don't think about them today. Think about the ones that you have a really hard time with. We have the greatest privilege in all the world, Trinity. We have been called by God himself. In light of this privilege, we are called to walk in a way that reflects our privilege to walk worthy. If you know anything about the male to female ratio in my house, uh, there are five female humans in my house and two female dogs in my house, okay? Um, if you know anything about that, you would know that naturally I know the entire theme song of Sophia the First, right? Can anybody own this with me this morning? Any guys? All right, John, thank you. You're two pastors. You've heard them. You, you've heard it here first. You should know that I refuse to surrender my man card on this too, all right? Sophia is awesome. If you're unfamiliar, unfamiliar with Sophia, I'm so sorry for you this morning. But Sophia is this little girl who is a commoner who becomes a princess overnight, you know that, um, and has to learn, she has to learn all the ins and outs of becoming a princess in a hurry. And in just one of the classic episodes of Sophia the First, she has to learn how to walk like a princess rather than a commoner. And she learns to do it properly by walking with books on the top of her head to demonstrate the worth of her new office as Princess of Enchantia. Uh, <clears throat> she had to learn to walk in a certain way with certain distinguishing characteristics. As followers of Jesus, there is a certain way that our gate should be trained to, our G-A-I-T, gate, the way that we walk. The gate of our walk 
is gracious. The gate of our walk is gracious. We already alluded to the fact that each of us has a unique gate, a unique way of walking. Christians do too. And our unique walk is to center around God's gracious call on our lives. If we orient our lives to God's grace, we will be characterized by three distinct markings here in verse 2. Humility, gentleness, and patience. Humility, because without God's call, we'd never have come to faith. That's the most humiliating thing ever. Gentleness, because God has been gentle and not hostile with us. And then patience, because God has dealt patiently with us. If these are the ways that God has treated us in calling us, then to live worthy of our calling, it makes sense that we should be characterized by these same qualities in our interactions with each other. Most of us in here today would profess to be Christians. But I wonder if your gait matches your profession. Does the way you walk with other Christians align with the faith that you profess with your mouth? You ever heard someone on the radio years before you saw what they looked like? It can be surprising, right? It's happened to me a number of times through the years as I've listened to radio personalities for, for many years and then saw their face for the first time. You see their face and you think, there's no way that face is attached to that voice because you've imagined some other face with that voice, right? It's the same way in the way that we relate to one another. Does your profession of faith in Jesus line up with the way that you treat Jesus' people? Does your profession of faith line up with the way that you express your faith and treat Jesus' people? We interact with Jesus' people in at least three main spheres here, at least that trinity. In your homes, with your spouse or kids if you have them, in our groups, community groups, and then at our gatherings like you experience right now. So in your home, does your gate match your profession? In your community group, does your gate match your profession? In our gatherings here, does your gate match your profession? These three things, gentleness, humility, and patience, nourish the unity that Paul is after from us today. Those three things nourish our unity. Let's talk about humility. No one thinks that they are the proud one, right? No one in here would be like, yeah, I, I'm the proud one in this relationship. But what does it actually mean to be humble? Let's just grant that none of us are the proud people, okay, for a second. What does it actually mean to employ humility, though? Well, C.S. Lewis helps us see this. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Or consider Paul's definition of humility in Philippians 2. It's this, counting others more significant than yourself. If we want a unified church, these ideas need to characterize us all. As you're in your homes, in, <clears throat> excuse me, in groups, in these gatherings with Jesus' people, how might these ideas of gentleness, patience, what was the other one? Gentleness, patience, and humility characterize the way that we interact with one another. Um, I'm going to run through these three categories real quick. Home, um, C group, and gathering for each of these characteristics. And I want to just give you some ideas. There are obviously a bajillion ways that we could employ these attitudes and characteristics, but let me give you a couple of ideas. How about being humble in your home? Married couples, thinking of yourself less 
might mean having your eyes open for some of the singles or some of the marginalized in our church here. Have them into your home. Be humble in your home. Think of yourself less. Invite them in. This will stir up unity. How about humble in your C group? Do you tend to monopolize the conversation in your C group? Try allowing others to have the first and the final word. This will stir up unity in your community group. Be humble in your community group. How about humble at this gathering? I remember when I first came on staff at Trinity almost five years ago now, I'd show up to the Sunday gathering really early, and there'd always be a single car in the parking lot already there. Um, But this is not what was interesting, that there was a single car in the parking lot. What was interesting was where this car was parked in the parking lot. It was always parked in the furthest corner of the parking lot. I'd walk inside the building, and there would be Nathan Nisley. Uh, Many of you have not had the privilege of meeting Nathan. He was an elder here, one of the founding elders here, uh, but he moved to Ohio, that jerk. Um, but, (laughs) But where his car was parked was a demonstration of his humility. Him not thinking on his own things, but on your things, your comfort, your ease of entry into the building. He wanted you to have the best parking spot. And to ensure this, he took the worst. You may have to get creative in how you show humility like Nathan, but the options are endless. So that's humility. Look at the next thing that should characterize our gate, gentleness. Think of this as kindness rather than roughness, kindness in place of roughness. Oftentimes, we bully to get our way, don't we? We manipulate, we criticize, we demand until we get what we want. Regrettably, I find myself doing this with my kids, and I I confessed that to them this week. Sitting on the love seat, I confessed how I often am not gentle, but rough, trying to move them in whatever direction I want them to move. I raise the volume of my voice, I demand, I shame in order to get what I want. This should not be a characteristic of someone who is walking worthy of their calling, of someone whose life is oriented around grace, because God, through Jesus, has been gentle and not hostile to us. We should operate similarly. So what does it look like to be gentle in your home? Husbands, dads, would your kids or wife say that you are characterized by gentleness? Are you kind rather than rough? Gentle in your community groups. There's never been an easier time to bring up a topic in small groups that you know will be divisive. You know it. Um, And it's a temptation for all of us right now. You never know what the person on the other side of the room is thinking or feeling about X topic that is particularly divisive now. So can I encourage you? One way to be gentle, to exercise gentleness, is to not even maybe bring that topic up at all. At this point, we're all kind of where we're at on COVID stuff, right? Might it be more gentle to just, in those kinds of settings, to keep it to yourself? I'm not, I'm not saying you never talk about it, but I am saying there are certain settings where it might be more gentle and loving to keep it to yourself. About being gentle at this gathering, Trinity pastors, I wonder, are you being gentle with your sheep? Look at the next thing that should characterize our gate, patience. The next call here is for patience to mark us. How patient are you with those who are more immature than you? Whether that's just physically more immature or spiritually immature. Maybe some younger Christians are a little less 
reliable than you'd like for them to be. Or maybe you feel that they're just a little bit too lazy. Maybe the gears of change happen more slowly at the church than you want them to happen. Join the crowd. If someone complains to you about something here, perhaps you could stir up unity by employing patience and encouraging them to do the same. If you know anything about yourself, you know that spiritual growth and progress take more time than you would like. So it shouldn't be hard to give space for others and even an organization to grow. Employing these characteristics really just means growing to be more like Jesus. This is why I said last week that we don't apologize and we won't apologize for pleading with the world to trust in and then follow Jesus because he is the most beautiful and whole human being that there ever was. It's literally in every person's best interest to become a Christian. We don't say that because we want a big church. We believe it's the truth. It's the loving thing to offer the gospel truth to unsaved friends and family because of all that Jesus has to offer. Gentleness, humility, patience. He exemplified them perfectly. Those three traits will nourish the final destination for us today. They nourish unity. The destination of our walk is unity. The call here is extraordinarily clear. We are to do everything we possibly can to pursue and maintain unity instead of fueling division. Pursue and maintain unity instead of fueling division. Unity might seem like something that you just sort of fall into, but it's not. It's something that we actually have to fight for. I think I've operated this way for most of my life, assuming unity. My eyes have been open in the last 24 months. Yours probably have too. You cannot just luck your way into true, gospel-rich unity. Without gentleness, humility, and patience, the destination of unity is impossible. Like we've already talked about, unity dominates the themes of Ephesians. It's on practically every page. But if we're going to have unity, it's important to know precisely what we are to have unity on or what our unity is to circle around. Without knowing the precise answer to this question, what do we unify around, we will get ourselves into serious trouble because we'll start feeling like in order to achieve unity, you need to agree with me on X, Y, or Z. That's not what we're talking about. That's not at all the case. What do we unify around? Well, one pastor has drawn these three ideas from Ephesians, that I, and I think they're, they're really helpful in helping us sort of define what the nucleus is that we, that we unify around. What must we agree on in order to achieve gospel-rich unity. These three things, common convictions about Christ, common confidence in Christ, and common care for Christians. Common care for Christians. We can disagree on a bajillion things, but if we have these three things in common, we can legitimately expect to have a unified church. We, in humility, gentleness, and patience, ought to be pursuing common convictions, common confidence, and common care. So first, convictions. Ephesians 4.13, if you look down a little bit past our text for today, uh, speaks of a unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. The knowledge. This is what we believe to be true about Christ. This also means that there are certain things we must agree on in order to be Christians. It's easy to get humility twisted into something that it isn't. Humility does not mean that we are tentative or spineless about truth. 
Paul is not advocating that we preserve unity at the expense of truth. If someone says or does something that does not align with truth, it's not humble to just let it go. We can't just agree to disagree on sexuality or abortion or how many legit religions there are or fill in the blank. We all have to agree with Jesus. That's what the unity is around. We unify around his truth and not our truth. The humility that leads to unity is not uncertainty and doubt and vagueness and confusion. Humility says, I am not the center. Truth is the center, and I submit to truth and go where it leads. I am not king. God is king. His will, my will is not the law. God's word is the law. I don't tell God how many faiths are acceptable to him. He tells me. Our humility centers on a common conviction of the knowledge of the Son of God. It also centers around confidence. Ephesians 4.13, again, speaks of the unity of the faith. So you've got the knowledge, and now you've got the faith, the confidence. Our common confidence is Christ. We unify around this one glorious truth that our only hope in life and death is Jesus. And finally, care. Ephesians 2.14 speaks of the end of hostility. For he made us one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. When hostility is replaced with gentleness, we have a common care for each other. So I would sum up Christian unity from Ephesians 2 to 4 as having common convictions about Jesus, common confidence in Jesus, and common care for Jesus' people, all flowing from a powerful Holy Spirit. This is the source of our unity. Looking for it anywhere or in anyone else will leave us desperate and disappointed. And so as we close here, I I just want to highlight one beautiful, gripping, unifying, mind-blowing truth to blow some wind into the sails of our unity ship. To experience a beautiful unity now that is intriguing to the world around us, we need to look into the future to see what kind of unity is ultimate, to see where all this stuff is headed. For Christians and non-Christians alike, unity is the sure future of the universe. Whether you believe it or not, this is the sure future of the universe. You know how like when you get out your phone and you type in address into your Google Map app? You can even put in more than one destination, have a couple of destinations in there. What we've talked about so far today is like the first destination that you type into your app. But there's a final destination on the map, and it's one that we probably won't make it to in this life before we breathe our last. But it is the inevitable future. It's in Ephesians 1. It's this, God made known to us the mystery of his will, a plan for the fullness of time, the end of time, to unite all things in Christ. This is the ultimate end of the universe for everything and everyone. So if you had like a map of history, a map that could somehow chart every single person and every civilization and every decision, big or small, and if you were to drop a pin on that final destination of the map of history, this is where the final turn would lead you. The fullness of time, all things uniting in Christ. This is the final address, the final destination the unity of all things in Christ. And somehow, in God's strange providence, we get to be a small part of nudging history in this direction, toward this glorious destination, towards unity. Ultimately, what is our worthy calling? 
Our calling is to strain toward the inevitable, cosmic, Christ-centric unity that God has given to us. Let me break that down real quick. It is inevitable because it already exists. Did you notice the subtle verb choice that Paul made there in verse 3? Look at verse 3 of Ephesians 4. Paul says that part of our calling is to maintain this unity. Maintenance assumes pre-existence. So in our little chapter of history that we're living in right now, in our little corner of the world right here in Abington, we get the privilege of maintaining what is our birthright already in Jesus. The momentum of this unity has already begun to inch forward, and we get to be a part of the one world order underneath the Son of God. It's inevitable, but it's also cosmic. It unites all things and all people. You see it there in, uh, in Ephesians 1.10. Read with me again. Find it again. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. So it's all things and all people. Uh, Abraham Kuyper said it like this. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. All things will be united in common submission to Jesus. The seas, the seals, and the seagulls, the aardvarks and the antelopes, the Grand Canyon, Mount Everest, the oceans and the creeks, Adam and Eve, David and Goliath, Jezebel, Esau, Elvis, Picasso, Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin, Socrates, Plato, Obama, Trump, Biden, Reagan, Bin Laden and Hitler, Alexander the Great, Attila the Hun, Buddha, Gandhi, Mother Teresa, you name it. They will all unite in common submission to the Son of God. You, me, and billions more will culminate in this final cosmic destination, and it's going to be epic. All things united under the gracious hand of Jesus. Make it so, Lord. Finally, it's Christ-centric because Jesus is the common thread. Jesus is why you are here. Jesus is why I am here, the purpose of why we are here. Jesus is the gravitational pull of history. The centrifugal force of all time is pulling to this inevitable end, the unity of all things in Jesus Christ. The entirety of our future and our forever future is all bound up with this man, Jesus. If the resurrection of Jesus is a lie, we are of all people most to be pitied because we have wasted our time and our lives. But if the resurrection is true, then our future is a ridiculous, epic eternity of mind-blowing glory underneath the gracious hand of King Jesus. And according to Ephesians 1, this unity has been given to us in the gospel. God made known to us the mystery of his will, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ. This is the end for which you and I were made, to contribute to, in our small corner, in our, in our small chapter of history, to contribute to this unity. It's inevitable, so you might as well join in. Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, white or black, young or old, all of us will culminate in glorious unity under Jesus. Some of us only think that we have unity with those around us, but it's only because really at the end of the day, we just share the same politics or the same point of view on whatever. But what if all those things were to wash away 
Will Jesus be enough to be the tie that binds you with, to your brothers and sisters in the church? In a season like we are in right now, if you need commonality on COVID or politics to be what preserves unity, you're going to drive others away. So don't seek it there. Seek it, the unity in Jesus. It's our inevitable future. So you might as well get moving on it now. What God is saying here is that he's going to make people you don't even like your brother and your sister because your unity will not be around some kind of shared earthly affinity. Instead, the gravitational pull of your unity will be circling around the God of eternity. If you're unifying around something other than Jesus, if your conversations are constantly circling around finding unity in in something, in a source other than Jesus, if you're trying to pull others into your gravitational pull of whatever you want them to agree with you on, you're bound to lose sight of your high and worthy calling to maintain and strive for the inevitable, cosmic, Christ-centric unity that God has already given. The thread that weaves all of history together is Jesus. Since before the foundation of the world, since before this world was here, God has been scheming and planning according to his good pleasure about how to make Jesus the focal point of salvation and ultimately the focal point of the universe. He will not fail. And all of us, we get pressed into this one access point. It's what gives us our commonality, after all. This one access point, the blood of Jesus. We draw near to each other in this way. We draw near to God in this way. We all have a desperate need for deliverance, and we find it all in the same place, equally needy. There's no room for pride here. There's no room for me to look down on you, nor you me. In Jesus, the playing field is absolutely leveled. So what does your walk look like? Do your words and actions appear to have any of the characteristics that we talked about today that will help pull this unity towards its epic conclusion? How's your gait? Is it patient, gentle, humble? In all of this, let us not forget the purpose of our unity. We've used this mantra before. If we want to go far, we have to go together. If we want to go far, we have to go together. We won't make it any other way. And when I say far, that's like an epic understatement. Far isn't about distance so much as it is about eternity. God's eternal life. And not just like a a, a quantity of life, but a quality of eternal life. Almost every human ever has wanted to max out their years on this earth, right? Live as long a life and as good a life as possible. That's why the organic section in your grocery store keeps on getting a little bit bigger each year. People want to live healthier, fuller lives. This is why we feel so robbed when someone dies prematurely. If we could figure out how to live forever, we would. That's an instinct that God has given to you. And this is exactly what is at stake for humanity. Quantity and quality of life. Forever flourishing life. To make it to the end, still believing, still hoping, still holding on to Jesus. We've got to go together, Trinity, or we're not going to make it. I won't make it by myself neither will you. This is why unity is indispensable. This is why we all have to think hard about how to actually employ gentleness and patience and humility, because these are things that nourish unity, and unity is the thing that helps us last until the end. God set it up this way. So don't minimize the importance of this short little text today. Don't minimize the incredibly vast need. You have to be patient, humble, and gentle, and to receive patience 
humility and gentleness. I mean, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go without helping anyone else, go alone. But if you want to go far, and you want the people around you in here to go far, to endure to the end, we've got to go together. Walk worthy by straining for unity. Will you pray with me? Communion service can come up, band can come up during this time. God, we need your help. Spirit of God, we need you to give us strength, to give us power to do this. We don't have it in and of ourselves. We don't naturally strive for this unity, and we need you to do it for us. Spirit of God, I pray that Jesus would dwell more fully in our hearts and that we'd be filled full with the fullness of God. In Jesus' name, amen.